I look at the pieces as, as, as objects. And, you know, I love knowing who they end up with. And I always believe the client chooses the object, but the object does choose the client as well. I really love to know who ends up owning those pieces and making sure that they are extremely loved and in the best home. And I actually see from auction houses, my jewelry doesn't end up in auction. So people must love them. I mean, that's reassuring. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the Home and Design Director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is one of the leading authorities in jewelry design today, Francesca Amphitheatrov. For decades, this enterprising talent has created collections and bodies of work for some of the biggest names in fashion, art, and design. As the Artistic Director of Jewelry and Watches at Louis Vuitton since 2018, Francesca has created stunning pieces during these most trying of times including the popular LV Volt line and multiple high jewelry collections. For 2021, she introduced Bravery, a collection tied to the 200th anniversary of the storied brand. More on that later. Not only is Francesca at the center of the fashion universe, but I'm fascinated by the trajectory of her career. To me, she's a designer's designer. She not only understands the craft aspect of the business, but her own CV is fascinating to me. She was born in Tokyo, studied design in London, debuted a line of silverware early on at the famed White Cube Gallery, has created home objects for Alessi, was a curator at the Gucci Museo in Florence, and was the first ever female design director at Tiffany & Company. In other words, she really knows her stuff. And if she doesn't sound busy enough, she's launched her own brand called Thief & Heist that puts a refreshing and contemporary take on the charm bracelet. I think Francesca offers a real insight not only into the world of jewelry, but also into the artistic and entrepreneurial lives of all designers. I spoke with Francesca in between her jet-set travels from her home in Connecticut about her early work for Alessi, what it takes to design for someone like Karl Lagerfeld, her collections for Vuitton, and what it takes to be successful today in this most ancient and eternal discipline of design. So tell me a little bit about your your early life. You've had an interesting and unique sort of early part of your life growing. Uh, you know, you were born in Japan, I believe. Tell me a little bit about that. So I was born in Tokyo. We had just moved from Hong Kong. Uh, my sister, who's a little bit older than me, was born in Italy. My father was bureau chief of Time magazine. So every three years... Basically, he was a foreign correspondent. That's what it means. So he started his career as a journalist, became a foreign correspondent, and eventually a bureau chief. And that meant that every four years, we changed country. Every four years, we were given a choice of three amazing places. And my father would get a map of the world when we were old enough, and he would put arrows down on, let's say, like Rio de Janeiro. And we'd go, yay, Paris. And my mother would go, yay. And then it would be Moscow. And my father would go, that's where we're going. (laughs) (laughs) We lived a life that where current affairs was everything, where if anything happened in the world, my father would get a phone call in the middle of the night and he would have a card that whisked him away. It Communication was done through telex. Everyone was a spy. And you lived this incredible life where 
Time Magazine really was the publication that mattered. Being on the cover of Time meant a lot. And my father probably interviewed every great leader, was in every important historical uh, moment that was happening at that point in the world, he was there. So if a war started, he was there. If uh, anything, I mean, we lived by current affairs and we only ate, drank and slept current affairs. There was no gossiping around the table. It was all very, you know, uh, historical and informed and interesting. And what made you want to study in, in London? How did you find your way to design? My my father, having been brought up in America, really wanted my sister and I to go to university in the, in America, really wanted us to go to Harvard. He had gone there. Uh, you know, he believed very much in education and very much in American education. I was at school in England because my parents were living in Moscow at the time. And it was still, you know, uh, the Soviet Union. And so I couldn't go to a military school, uh, a Russian military school. So I went to boarding school in England, where I really started to love art. And I had an amazing art teacher who had a huge influence on me. I made my first piece of jewelry when I was 15 years old. And I loved every minute of discovering this whole side of me. And so I secretly applied to art school and I applied to do a foundation course, which I thought was the best experience you could have because you do a little bit of everything until you narrow down your choices. So you're given the possibility of actually learning what you don't want to do. Because mm. how the hell are you meant to know what you want to do in life, age 18? You know, it's, 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 you're going to get it wrong, most likely. It's a 50-50. Um, so I applied to do a foundation and then I didn't, you know, I was meant to apply to do SATs and I didn't, I literally ripped it up and threw it away. Didn't <laughs> tell my parents and managed to get a scholarship to go and do a bachelor of arts degrees at St. Martin's. And so I got into St. Martin's, I got a scholarship and I was off. And the famous design school in London, I might add. Yes, the, the very, the very yeah, famous Central design school. I did I did a foundation at Chelsea School of Art. I did a BA, a Bachelor of Arts at Central St. Martin's. And then I did an MA at the Royal College. I could be a surgeon, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I studied seven years and I could have actually come out with a, with a real career, as they say. But no, but I um, that's, that's all, um, you know, fun and games. I'm really excited that I did those years and I studied and I was trained as a bench jeweler. I know how to make jewelry. And after that, I did a year in Italy as an apprentice in Padova, which has a very famous school. School. It has a body of very well-known artistic um, jewelers art jewelers who all are around Padova and and I was I went there and I trained with one of them for about six months and that really taught me so much when it comes to making and also I did quite a lot of silversmithing so I kind of came out quite well prepared and you and you did some work earlier on in your career with Alberto Alessi which I think you know for someone who eventually goes on to be work in fashion and jewelry is, is quite rare in in the lovely sort of connections between these two worlds of design and, and everything else. Can you tell me a bit about that first time you met him and, and what that relationship was like? So the Royal College of Art, at every uh, end of year, they do a big degree show. It's a big exhibition. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a lot of the industry comes to find 
the talent, right? Next year's talent. And at the same time, the Royal College of Art gives out this these doctors, these awards, which are a doctorate uh, to different people that they choose in the professions that they follow. So the year that I graduated, it was David Hockney, it was Izemiyake, it was uh, Fritz Lang, the French cultural prime minister who built the pyramid, and it was Alberto Lessi. And you go on stage, they're on stage with you, and you all receive, you know, your your awards. And afterwards, I was uh, by my exhibition, and he came up to me, and he was very interested in my work. And I had been drilling uh, silver and then spinning them, so stretching the holes. And he was fascinated and he said that he wanted to start a silversmithing workshop under the Alessi sort of umbrella. And the amazing thing with Alberto Alessi is Alberto Alessi inherited the company that his father built. The company was a and is a steel pots and pans company company. It's a very mundane, everyday utilitarian pots and pan steel factory. Alberto Lassi came along and jumped onto the Memphis bandwagon, jumped onto what was kind of uh, early, like 80s, early 80s design Milan kind of, you know, mm. craziness that was happening, which was really exciting. And he started working and collaborating with all these designers with no end in sight. He didn't care what the product was. Like he made a saxophone with Mendini. He only made one. I mean, it was obviously right, not right. going to be, you know, profitable as the pots and pans were, but it wasn't what he was focused on. And he actually created this incredible design company. And so he wanted me to come on board, but he wanted me to come on board as a silversmith. And he wanted to kind of give up industrialization and go into the closeness you have with making objects that are just, you know, numbered up to 10, let's say the most. And so he invited me to Milan, but he wanted me to meet at Tresorzas first. So I arrive in Milan, just graduated. I go and meet Ettore Sotsas. Ettore Sotsas, who was the king of Memphis design, Absolutely. looks at my work, who's also German and quite like to the point, looks at my, at my work. He goes, yes, you're good, but you're not for me. Go and see Alberto. So I'm like, okay. So I pack up. I go and see Alberto. <laughs> I go and see Alberto. And Alberto basically, from the minute I walk in, uh, makes me feel like I'm part of the family. Start introduces me to Laura Polinoro, who was the head of design. And funnily enough, we're mm -hmm. dressed the same, which is also kind of, we always remember looking at each other. We're both dressed exactly the same. And we started to collaborate and I started to design objects and they started to produce those objects. And how LSC works is you do all the legwork to start with. They then prototype. Once the prototype is accepted, it goes into production. It takes two years from, you know, literally giving a design in to it being in stores. And then you get a percentage on royalties and your name is attached to it. So it's very democratic. You're very much part of the family of Alessi. And I, it's one of the oldest working relationships I've ever had. And I really love them. I think they're amazing. And I think Alberto Alessi was a pioneer and a visionary and just a really warm and lovely, generous man. And what he did was incredible. And how did those early days kind of impact you as a designer? Because that's a what you're explaining is almost like how they do furniture in Italy is this like three year process and it's really a studio culture and things like that. Is there any kind of do you think that that sort of 
change the trajectory of your career as as a jewelry designer? Um, I don't think so. I think that it 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 in fact reinforces how much I think pieces can lose when they go into high industrial fabrication process and also how steel is a steel is a really tough metal you know it just doesn't want to do anything so Mm. you know uh designing something interesting in steel is very difficult compared to a metal like silver which is soft and you can shape and form into a million ways so yeah it's fun working for alessi it's great but my heart is definitely uh elsewhere when it comes to i mean my 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 main passion with jewelry is metal and i you know i love working in gold and silver and there's just so many possibilities and in steel it's very limiting before we return to francesca a word from our sponsor fritz hansen the hallmark of any classic work of design is longevity and versatility the series seven chair by arne jacobsen is one of those icons that has stood the test of time from the dining room to the home office the curvaceous series seven first designed in 1955, fits into almost any scenario. It's made from nine layers of pressure-molded veneer for incredible strength, despite it being so slender and easy on the eye. Today, the hourglass-shaped chair comes in a variety of options. Upholstered, ones with armrests, covered in leather, with wheels for the office, stool height, or even a children's version. My personal favorite is the classic lacquered wood Series 7, with new colorways curated by Carla Sozzani of 10 Corso Como. When you combine the subtle choices, like Paradise Orange or Wild Rose, with new base options, the design possibilities are infinite. To acquire your own piece of authentic mid-century design, visit fritzhansen.com. And how, tell me about this transition from you being, you know, a studio practice and, and making your own things, um, working, you know, to working with brands, to working as an in-house designer. How did that, how did that transition happen? So, um, a lot of things happened organically, like small, smaller designers like Rifat Osbeck, who was really hot at the time in London, Turkish, brilliant man, uh, asked me to make the jewelry, and that was sort of fairly straightforward. Then um, Amanda Harlick joined Chanel and Carl, I had known Carl for a number of years. I uh, knew a few people that worked very closely with him and he had worn some of my jewelry and he was really interested in what I was doing. And he actually uh, bought a lot of my vases, a lot. He was very keen on the vases that I made and he wore my tags and he was like a fan. So um, one day Amanda comes to see me and says, I need you to... Uh, design a collection of jewelry for the Chanel catwalk. And I said, oh, wow, amazing. Yes, what's the theme? And she said, we're not telling you. You do what you think. And so I had these discs left over from when I was at the Royal College that I was like spinning these discs with holes in them, which is how my relationship with Alessi started. I had them kicking around my workbench and I made them into these bracelets and uh, and I attached them to elastic. And then I made belts and bracelets and little necklaces. And I put them in a box with a note for Carl saying, I really hope we'll be able to work together one day. Thinking there's no way... Like, chance in a million he could be doing you know 
I don't know, any theme that I'm completely not in sync with. Mine was very Barbarella or, you know, Space Odyssey. And um, I got a letter from him three days later saying, bravo, bravo, come to Paris. And so that kind of kick-started it. And then at the same time, he asked me to do Fendi in the same season. So I, when you get an order for at the time from Carl, it was like thousands and thousands of pieces for the fashion show. I mean, because Chanel, you know, famous Chanel has, you know, a model per look. No other brand has that. Each model has two or three looks. You know, Chanel is at another scale to everyone else. So the scale was huge. And I kept on being called by them saying, are you sure you can do it? Drop Fendi, just do Chanel if you can't deliver. And one thing I've always done in my life is no matter what I deliver, that's just like a my sense of beauty, my rule of thumb, no matter what I deliver. And I delivered for both Fendi and Chanel. And then I did again Fendi the following season. And I thought to myself, this is not bad. Like you work quite hard and then you're done. This is maybe a lot better. And so I had kind of got onto that bandwagon and I started to do a lot of shows. And and did that, you know, did that appeal to you in terms of, did you have to then move farther away from doing everything, you know, on your own with a bench and kind of getting away from the hand of the, of the maker? Yeah, in a way it did. It's a lot simpler. You know, you have one, you have fewer clients. You don't have to deal with shipping and tax and duty. And, you know, your team isn't so stretched out. And, um, you know, that leads you to have, in a way, more exposure. Um, but it was, again, it was different. It's when, sh- you know, everything has changed so much in, in that sector that, you know, I was coming out of the 90s when nobody wore jewelry. It was Helmut Lang. It was the mm. Belgian Six. Jewelry did not exist. And then so suddenly you were moving into something where jewelry came back into the conversation, but it was interesting. Stores were, you know, still being very supportive. So you could sort of do a little bit of both, right? You could do a little bit of both until the big gu- the big boys kind of came out and started to offer me positions in-house. And what was your first position in-house? So my first position in-house was for, for Asprey and Garrard, which is mm-hmm. the crown jewelers of, of, of England. Asprey and Garrard was owned by the Asprey family, and then it was sold to the Sultan of Brunei, who used it as his own kind of in-house jeweler. Then they subsequently sold it to a group uh, that included Lawrence Stroll and Silas Chow, who are very well known for having started Tommy Hilfiger, for having done all the cotton for Ralph Lauren, and they literally launched Tommy um, and were the business partners behind him. And they bought Aspirin Garrard and they put in a brand new team and I started to work in-house. And it's really uh, my only other in-house job that I've ever done apart from Tiffany where I've actually gone in full-time. And I worked there for a year, then I went to Garrard for a year and I just did not gel at all with the team there. It wasn't a good fit. No, not at all. You know, sometimes in life... It's like chemistry. Some things in life just don't work. No point fighting them. Just walk away. Because there's some people you're not meant to be close to. So I left. And within a week, I was, um, I was, I was 
um, flown out to Milan to meet the creator, the owners of Marni, the fashion house. Of course. And within 10 days, I was working with Marni and I was doing their jewelry. I was, I launched their eyewear. They had never done eyewear before. And I was consulting a little bit on shoes and bags. And I really, really loved working for the owner, Consuelo Castiglione, and really loved working for Lucinda Chambers, who was kind of creative director, who is a very well-known fashion stylist from fashion editor from Vogue, from British Vogue, went, was there for years and is brilliant. So I worked with them for three years and had a great time. And when it came to working at Tiffany, how did you find yourself at at the company, which had, what was that sort of approach like for you when you entered the doors there? (laughs) That was tough because I went from working at biggish companies with a creative vision to going into corporate America. I mean, Mm. God, it was like hitting a double-decker bus. It literally was everything that I was not prepared for. Um, it was soulless. It had, actually, let me rephrase that. The first year there was great because the CEO at the time was Mike Kowalski and Mike Kowalski was a legendary CEO of Tiffany. He had steered Tiffany for decades into enormous growth. He was so focused on the growth that maybe it had become too ubiquitous and too sort of low price point silver focused that they wanted me to come in to elevate. Mm-hmm. I came in with the tea collection, which is a collection that in four years made $1 billion to Tiffany. It's probably the fastest growing, most successful collection they've ever had, or God knows any other house could launch. Um, but I came with the drawings of it and they first showed me what they were going to launch Mm-hmm. for the year because you always work a year ahead the very 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 least and i said to them i don't understand i'm sorry but and you know in a very corporate situation nobody says anything start with that everybody's right. got their heads down on the ground eyes to the floor cmo included nobody says a word so i piped up and i said hey guys i'm going to put my two cents in but i don't understand why you plan to make more of the same stuff it's just more mm. stuff It's nothing different from what you already have. And so I said, look, I've got this idea. And I showed them the sketches. And Mike said, right, we're stopping everything. And this is what we're going to do, which is kind of extraordinary because you're stopping a giant, like, you know, train that is just speeding, you know, full speed ahead towards something. And you have to completely stop it and turn it all around. And that's a huge money loss, difficult and risk. And they did it and they uh, were very open to me working on the advertising, which I did the full campaign on the positioning, on the windows, on the in-store design, on the merchandising. I designed everything and it was immensely successful and it was great. Uh, But they then changed CEO and a different CEO came in uh, who had very odd uh, ways of working. His ideas were good, uh, Frederick Kumanal, but his uh, working methods and communications were appalling. And he was actually, I would say, fairly rude and offensive. And nobody supported me within the company when that happened. So it was a really difficult time. And the more success I brought them, the more they hated me. 
So mm. it was tough. And it's, you know, a lot of the beauty of Tiffany is, it, is, is its culture, you know, is the fact that if you cut your finger, you bleed blue. You're just so mm. into that Tiffany mentality and that old, um, very polite American way of being, which is perfectly represented in Breakfast at Tiffany was being stripped away and actually that's the best thing it had going for it really it's what people when they think of tiffany what do they think what comes into their mind and so the last three years were really tough and they were very political very unpleasant to be in as a world so it was it became a pretty damaging place tiffany actually before we return to francesca a word from our sponsor Jalou ebeniste Jaloux Ebeniste are creators of collectible design made in France. Based in a medieval village in Brittany, the atelier is led by aesthetic director Sandra Skolnick Jaloux and master cabinet maker Jan Jaloux. Les Jaloux design their own collections and collaborate with top interior designers from around the world on bespoke commissions for private residences and super yachts. And brands such as Dior, Lalique, and Cartier have all embraced their work. One of the materials that Jolu specializes in is straw marquetry, as Sandra explains. We are proud to have the world's largest straw marquetry workshop, and we're also proud to keep this tradition alive. To me, it's one of the great French decorative arts. The technique is simple and complex, easy to learn, but difficult to master, and it requires tremendous patience. Each piece of straw is opened, pressed, cut, and then glued by hand. The colors are rich and varied, enhanced by the material's natural sheen and the geometric patterns we create. One favorite is the ripple cabinet, due to its monumental presence and dynamic pattern of concentric circles. What makes us different? It's the high level of savoir-faire, the quality, and the creativity that goes into our work. For more information, visit jaloux.com. That's J-A-L-L-U dot com. So soon after your time ended at Tiffany, in 2018, you joined Vuitton as the artistic director for Watches and Jewelry. What has been like designing not just for a legendary brand, but also during this crazy time of the pandemic? Well, first of all, I absolutely love working at Vuitton because again, it's always the people that make the place. And the CEO, Michael Burke, is amazing. He really is one of the most intelligent, interesting, open-minded, approachable, funny men. And so every time you spend time with him, you learn something, you uh, understand something, you are enriched by your experience with him. And it's on every level. It's not just about talking about Louis Vuitton. So that's phenomenal. And that's, I think, so often overlooked the relationship between the creative director or the artistic director and the CEO. And actually, it's everything. Because if you don't share the same vision, you will not be successful. Uh, and it personally can change your life. So I had met Michael at Fendi when I did the Fendi show and I had met him with Carl and we started talking the minute I left Tiffany and we talked for a year 
before embarking on this. And when I said to Michael, we had a lunch in Paris before I'd signed. And I said to him my idea that I had for the high jewelry collection, which was women, historical women in, in the medieval time who changed history and he was like yes we're doing this right now he was so excited so I love the fact that it that at Vuitton ideas is what enriches you and it isn't about politics or undermining someone because of you know of being scared of creativity which is what mm -hmm. had happened at, at, at Tiffany's creativity was just too unknown too risky not you know no one understood it and instead at Vuitton it's literally a house that is driven by so many interesting ideas that are actually quite risky and you have the power to do it and the freedom to do it. So it's super exciting. And I basically, when I started at Vuitton, I was there for two years before the pandemic hit. We actually did a launch for the collection called Vault, which is a fine jewelry collection. Mm -hmm. And we held a launch party where we had about 250 journalists who were just ran out of the Armani show in Milan, you know, because they'd heard that there was this pandemic and they had all gotten on the same plane and come to Paris and they all came to the Vuitton <laughs> launch. So it was, I kissed about 250 journalists on both cheeks and didn't get COVID, which is quite extraordinary. Um, but we had that launch and then we were three days later, all everyone flew back and we went into major lockdown and it was March. And basically... I then began the high jewelry collection, which we launched this year called Bravery, which is the collection mm -hmm. that celebrates 200 years of the birth of Louis Vuitton. And I had two things going my way. One was that I by then knew my team quite well because I had to put together this team. That I was the, I'm the first artistic director for Watches and Jewelry at Vuitton. So the team is new. The direction is new. Uh, the scope is new. But I'd had two years to really kind of become, you know, one and to show the vision that I had. Mm -hmm. And we'd had success behind us because we'd already launched two high jewelry collections that were very successful. So everybody was pointing in the right way. And then the other thing was that I had seen the stones I had been in Paris and seen the stones because it's really hard to design a collection of high jewelry if you don't know what the stones look like. And, and if you haven't felt the stones, not so much what they look like because you get the dimensions, the colors, you need to feel them. And for people who aren't, you know, completely in the world of jewelry, like these stones had been purchased before you started designing or how, how does that work normally? So I, okay. So there are, there are fairs like, Tucson in Arizona is probably the most famous fair for colored stones. Uh, now, to backtrack a second, buying diamonds is fairly straightforward. You look at the carrot, the cut, and the clarity. Those are your three, you know, main drivers. And it's a little bit like buying a car. You know, you know your engine, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fairly driven by these three pillars. And so you can quickly become enough of an expert to know whether you're buying the right diamond, right? Mm -hmm. Buying colored stones, throw all of that out of the window. Colored stones are 
each stone is different. They have uh, a lot of mood in them. There can be mm. an amazing colored stone. It's a sapphire. It's the right color, perfect cup. But when you look at it, it just doesn't move you. Or it's looking mm. like it's angry. It's in a bad <laughs> mood. Yeah, you literally, you do, you get a... Um, you get a feeling from the stones. So um, you need to have seen them. You need to have fallen in love with them. And I'm not a gymnologist. I'm very much design-based, but still I had to have seen the stones. So I'd seen the stones. The team was like ready to go. We had just come back from Tucson. We had just come back in February. So I'd seen the stones, the new ones that were still on their way. And we had this amazing theme. And I had gone to the archive and I had researched a lot on Louis Vuitton. And what I loved about the theme was that the theme, so everybody knows Louis Vuitton, right? As a big brand. But mm. nobody stops and thinks about who was this young man. And mm. we were celebrating his birth. So we weren't celebrating the achievements of his career. Our starting point was his birthplace and how he got to where he got to. And so I was literally stuck in Connecticut in the, you know, beautiful nature, studying a young boy who had been born in the Jura, which is a mountainous region, uh, northeastern France towards uh, Switzerland just on the border with Switzerland, which is known for logging. It's basically forest. And mm -hmm. his father was a logger and they lived by a mill and his mother died when he was young and his father remarried and the stepmother was horrid. It's like a Cinderella story. And <laughs> then he leaves home, age 12, 13, and he walks to Paris and it takes him two years to walk to Paris. So you can imagine this young boy, young boy, taking odd jobs, sleeping in stables, working, you know, here and there to feed himself. Over two years, he leaves as a young boy. He arrives as a young adult to a Paris that is beginning to change. You know, the sort of old medieval Paris is being rethought. Houseman has been given the task to design the modern boulevards. The opera is being just built, you know, the world is opening up, steam engines, ships, you know, going to America, all of it starts to transform. So the incredible thing is that this illiterate young boy arrives in Paris, works at a packer, a packer of goods, and mm. sees the trunks all have a domed top because they were like, treasure chests. Right. And he thinks, well, this is not going to work if you've got to stack them up for transport. And so he makes the first flat trunk and opens his company. And the story starts from there of the, of the business. But the fact is nobody ever thinks of this young boy, you know, mm. sleeping in the forest and probably being really afraid. And, and so in my head, I because I was so isolated, I ended up just really feeling like I was walking alongside him. I was, this journey was me walking alongside Louis Vuitton, heading to Paris, you know, not knowing what the future holds, but having this thing called l'élan vital, which is your life vital force that each one of us has in a different way, right? 
And it's this notion actually was coming about in France that everybody has their own life force and everyone's life force is what draws you to your destiny and everyone's is different. And how did, can you describe the collection, the bravery collection and how, you know, your sort of investigations of his life sort of translated into these pieces? Absolutely. So it starts, this is how I do collections. So I have a theme and I study it and I divide it into chapters as if it's a book and I allocate a theme to every chapter and I allocate the stones to every chapter and I give it a rhythm so that I know that it can start, you know, quiet and build up, build up. You can have moments of drama. You can have like mm -hmm. moments of silence. You can have moments of color. It just all um, builds. And so it starts with La Constellation d'Hercule, which is the night sky in August in the Jura region, has Hercules constellation. Hmm. So he was born under the constellation of Hercules. And so that was my opening chapter. And I made these pieces out of tanzanite, opal, savorites, and diamonds, really organic. Then the hmm. second chapter was called the Elan Vital. So this idea of your life force, all in diamonds, like a DNA. Basically, I took uh, the design of ropes, because the ropes were used as the handles of all trunks that were used for expeditions. And then after L'Elan Vital, there was uh, L'Aventure. So he leaves home. He mm -hmm. walks to Paris on this adventure. And L'Aventure is special because obviously Vuitton's reason in existence is about travel. And he starts his adventure by traveling. So it's sort of a line on a parallel to what we all think mm. of Louis Vuitton. Then the next chapter after the adventure was uh, La Flèche, which is called The Arrow. And mm. it was this notion, this idea of an arrow that was pointing him, like magnetically pointing him towards Paris. And the arrow is also man's first graphic symbol. Mm. And it's still what we use today. Right. So we use mm -hmm. it in street signs and in, you know, your watch face. But that's really our first ever graphic symbol. Then after the arrow, there was the myth, Limit, which is a necklace where I put all the codes that Vuitton invented, the Damier pattern, uh, the, you know, the nails and the studs on all the edges of the trunks, the flower pattern, you know, everything that basically makes the legacy of Vuitton. Then after that, I had La Passion, which was a ruby story because without passion, you're not going to do anything. Then I had Le Tumbler, which Louis Vuitton invented two famous locks for his trunks. Mm. One is Le Tumbler and one is the Multipine. And they basically were unbreakable. He even had Houdini. He challenged Houdini to break a Louis Vuitton uh, trunk, which Houdini didn't do, <laughs> didn't rise up to the challenge. But basically, he also invented this lock that you just needed one key to open all your trunks or uh. all your cases. So you wouldn't have to have a single key for each one independently, but one key opened everything. And so I did two stories on each of those locks. Then it ended with the awards. Uh, Vuitton, as a form of marketing and PR, did all the Grand Exposition, you know, all the great universal exhibitions from London to Paris to mm. Belgium. Uh, and he won in a lot of them. He won a lot of awards. And so that was kind of um, 
a celebration of the achievements. And so that's sort of how I told the story. So it goes from the birth to his life, to what he achieved, what he created, and then to celebrating him. And of all these pieces, which is the which one was the most challenging for you in terms of design or from sort of like a craft perspective? Oh, gosh, you know what? I missed out maybe the most important piece, which is the one that was the challenging one. <laughs> so the most important piece is called La Star du Nord, so the our North Star. And it was mm. and it's basically a diamond. Do you know what a diamond riviere is? A diamond riviere is a old mm-hmm. all, all diamond necklace, which you see yeah. on on royalty or you see it on, you know, like it's an important diamond necklace with big stones. And I basically uh, used the knot that is inside the trunk, which is the Vuitton knot, which is basically just a one knot with instead being a double knot, like a bow, it's just a single. And mm-hmm. it's quite, in, it's it's not flouncy and feminine. It's It's very, you know, it does what it needs to do, but it's very beautiful. And we created a knot in diamonds. And then um, we have just launched our own diamond cut, which is an incredible achievement that we have uh, brought to the world uh, at Louis Vuitton. And it's in the shape of a star, the Vuitton star. And Hmm. the other one is in the shape of the Vuitton flower. So they're very branded diamond, which to me is the holy grail of any diamond jewelry because a diamond is a diamond. I can't tell if you bought it on Canal Street or at Harry Winston. You know, it's if unless I'm looking at it close up, even I can't tell. So, um, what was that process like in terms of creating your own cut oh, for this diamond? V- very difficult, very long with huge challenges because obviously, you know, the more you're cutting into the stone, the more you have waste which you Mm -hmm. don't want to have too much, but also the tension in the stones. You know, if you look at any stone that has points, like, you know, a lozenge cut shape, uh, you know, like a marquise, if the tips are not exactly parallel, it will shatter. It just explodes. Ah. So diamonds are so dense and so hard that the geometry has to be perfect. So it's very complicated. It took us a great number of years. And, you know, to see if a diamond is really beautiful, it needs to have like fire in it. When you Mm. look at a diamond and you see colors of the prism, you see fire inside it, that's a good stone. Mm. That's, you know, so, so we have on this necklace a 10 carat star sitting offside just next to the knot and to you what you can do is you can remove the stone and wear it as a ring but what you do is you slightly pull the knot to one side it releases the stone and then the knot moves up the tracks and hides the mechanism so it's as if it's a little carriage on a railway track which is you know it's complex for a necklace that sounds very complicated did you have was that idea hard sell no, because I love anything. I'm a real nerd. I love engineering in pieces. I find that the more you come up with a clever piece of engineering, the more original the piece is, the more it's hidden, the more mysterious it is. And that's something that as jewelers we need to do. And at the same time, the whole necklace is full of movement and supple because you want it to sit beautifully on your neck and you don't want something rigid. So it's overcoming all of those. And this idea that this mechanism is completely hidden and you slide the knot and you glide it up and down 
means that you can wear the necklace daytime, you know, it just because you wear diamonds during the day, why not? But then at night in the evening, you can put on your 10 carat and blind everyone. What would you say does a piece of jewelry have to have today in order to truly be successful in this sort of day and age of how people wear jewelry? That's a very good question. You know what? I think the main thing is that your jewelry today needs to not just be for one or two occasions in life. You know, it's like we do not wear tiaras at the opera. We maybe do not go to white tie and black tie events as much as we'd like. I never did. I know what we'd like. I don't know. But, you know, life is different. And I do not agree with not absorbing that. You've got to absorb that. You've got to give people also what they can really enjoy. Jewelry is something that has so much power in such a small piece and such a tiny object. You can hold so much symbolic meaning and plus on top, literally you know, a diamond is the closest thing that we have to the beginning of this planet. So there is a lot packed into these tiny pieces of beautiful, stunning objects. So to me, they need to be wearable on as many occasions as you want. They need to move. I cannot, as a woman, in any shape or form, condone stiff jewelry because it needs to be central to the skin. These are hard materials, stones, metal, it needs to be built in a way that it moves with your body and that it sort of becomes part of you like a second skin. And three, I think the transformability is important because then you can get a lot out of your piece of jewelry. And we have, for example, made big, and I like big jewelry, so I also do make quite big pieces. Um, we've made necklaces where the mother, a mother and daughter bought them together and they each have like five different ways of wearing it and they swap them around depending on when they need, you know, to wear them for what. And it's things like that that are great fun. And these are big investments. You know, they're not inexpensive things and they have incredible stones. And And we also make one of each of the necklace. Any necklace that is made with important stones, there's only one in the world. So you want to get a lot out of it. You want to have fun wearing it. You don't want it to sit in a safe. So anything that allows you to get as much pleasure out of wearing it, I think it has to be a concern and it has to be in somehow met. And it needs to not feel like it was belonging to your grandmother or great-grandmother or great-great-great-grandmother. It needs to feel like it's a little bit more of today's design, I think, identity. And, you know, speaking about these sort of like new ideas, you've you have Thief and Heist, your own your own line. Tell me of when you're when you're so incredibly busy. If we talk like why you decided, I know what I'll do. I'll Crazy. I'll create. I'll I'll uh, go off and, and create my own direct to consumer brand. What what? Crazy tell me about stuff. that 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wild moment. Um, yeah. So you know, all ideas start with oh, we're only going to do one item. It's going to be easy, right? I Thief and Heist is a vehicle for me to stretch out my limbs with, you know, I get a lot of ideas that are really to do with engineering or to do with, you know, why does 
a cuffling have to behave like that? Or why does this have to be like that? Why can't we change it? And so thief and heist is a great way of expressing my uh, instinct to break traditions. Jewelry is traditional. You've been told all your life, when you get married, you have to have a wedding band. When you get engaged, you have to have a wedding ring. When you do this, you have to, it's very structured. And actually, a lot of it is a constructed and very well marketed, you know, set of ideals. So my, my, the fun that I have with Thief and Heist is to just to break that down. And we only launch one item at a time. And, you know, it's this one skew that is just about the idea. And whether you love the idea, great, you can buy it. Or if you don't, you wait for the next one. And we launch with the tags, which are a permanent bracelet made out of reground plastic, part reground plastic, sorry, part reground nylon and sterling silver. And then now we've just launched a bracelet, which is my new take on, you know, the old, you know, so say goodbye, get rid of the old fashioned charm bracelet or ID bracelet and code breaker is the new interpretation of that. So mm. it's a bracelet that allows you to click in and out your you know, letters, studs, eventually we're going to be doing all sorts of other symbols, numbers, you know, uh, zodiac signs, and so on and so on. But basically, you buy a bracelet, and that bracelet has an evergreen life, you can continuously update it by buying uh, what we're calling bricks, which are our, our charms, spelled mm -hmm. B-R-I-X. Those bricks click in and out and you can constantly customize it and you can update it. And so you have a, an ongoing lifespan for your piece of jewelry. And you can also swap it. You know, you can be out with somebody and they have, you know, something written on it and you can undo the letters and mix them up and do, you know, do new ones. So it's, it's, it's really fun. It's really approachable price point wise. And it's really fun to build it because we've done a very cool site where it's like text messaging. That's how you build your bracelet. And if you could send uh, an email back to yourself when you first graduated from school and you were working on your own bench, like what sort of advice would you give to uh, that young Francesca about her 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 impending career? I think it's more okay. So I have a motto that Karl Lagerfeld gave me, which I actually say to myself all the time: is always say yes to everyone and then do exactly what you want. <laughs> and I think that that has, when I didn't listen to him, I regretted it because you, when you work in some big companies and you come across people, you're not going to change their mind. They're fully formed. They've got their own ideas. There's no point fighting it. You know, just say yes and do what you think is right. So that's definitely something that stood by me. And honestly, when I didn't do it, I regret it. But the thing is to observe De always deliver, no matter what deliver, you know, never, ever uh, come up empty handed and never lower your expectations or your ideas and creativity rules. Thank you to Francesca and the team at Louis Vuitton for making this episode happen. And a special thanks to Stefania Amphitheatrov. For more information about Francesca's work, visit louisvuitton.com and thiefandheist.co. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. 
To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.